Welcome to Season 3 of the Reformed Informants Podcast, featuring T.J. Darty, the Senior Pastor at Central Baptist Church in Paris, Kentucky, and Lance Burroughs, Pastoral Assistant at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs. I'm TJ Darty, And we are the Reformed Informants. Man, you're going to need to get yourself a cup of coffee over there, man. Uh, it's been a long one for you today, right? Pastoral ministry, man. Just uh, one thing after another. You know how it goes. Uh, that's just... We all have those days, and today's just one of those days for me. But I will say, um, things like this, sitting down, opening the Bible, chatting with you, uh, it doesn't drain me like some of the other things do. This is this is just, it, it, it picks me up. So I'm excited about it. It's not one of those things that I have to add on my to-do list. It's something I get to do, and uh, thankful for you putting together the guide because I just didn't do anything to contribute so you're going to be leading the way tonight but i'm excited to, to tag along with you no man tonight recording the podcast for you is man it's just icing on the cake it's been a good fruitful day of ministry and man you can you can top it off uh with some nice icing some nice frosting by the way i mean i, I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast but what, i mean what is your favorite cake do you have one? Oh gosh i mean if it's cake i'm eating it so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I know it's hard. Why, why, why split hairs over that? Oh man, there's, there's no reason to have a theological debate over that, man. That's right. Well, what we got on the agenda tonight, man? We're going to continue uh, the little summer series that has kind of developed from within. It's been a really cool uh, set of conversations that we've had, and I think as we were chatting a little bit beforehand, we talked about how uh, just how how much we've said already in just two episodes. And so it's been uh, really fun to discuss this call for biblical worship. And uh, just by way of review, this is the third episode of that uh, little mini series that we've, we're, we're unpacking here. Uh, the first one, we talked about the regulative principle, which was kind of uh, the foundation and set the stage for these uh, following conversations. And so that, that kind of laid the foundation, the framework. Uh, then last, last time we made a case for expository preaching, and now we're going to continue the discussion uh, for uh, biblical corporate worship uh, by discussing the ordinances of communion and baptism as worship. So uh, really excited to see where this uh, episode takes us. Yeah, that's right. This is episode 68 a Call for Biblical Worship Part 3, Communion and Baptism as Worship. Um, so as you just recapped us, uh, that first episode uh, in, in this series is, is really the anchor, the foundation for the series. So if uh, you've just jumped on board of the podcast for the first time, go back and listen to Part 1 and 2, specifically Part 1, because that lays the foundation for what we're talking about today. So we're working our way through the regulative principle. And as you mentioned, TJ, the regulative principle gives us two ordinances that the church uh, should be participating in uh, on a regular basis. Um, so we're going to unpack uh, those ordinances uh, that we've already mentioned, communion and 
baptism, but we're going to take a look at those from a little bit of a different angle, um, from a different yeah. perspective uh, than one might expect. Uh, so we're going to kick off this episode by talking about what this episode is not going to be about. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that because when when these two, I don't know, when this conversation comes about, there's there's so much that could be said. And for those of you who have been tracking with us from the beginning, we're we're building a systematic, and of course we'll come back and try to fill in the gaps. Uh, from some of those things uh, down the road as well. But we, we've looked at major doctrinal areas and we've tried to do so in such a way uh, that there's uh, cohesiveness and direction and thought and and perp- like purpose behind the, the order of the episodes. And uh, that's been especially true as it relates to this because this conversation really fits... Uh, could fit more in the ecclesiology, the study of the church, right? So we could, when we get to ecclesiology, we will actually spend more time, probably an individual episode on each of these, talk about the theological significance, their role for the local church, how um, how, how these things function, what they should look like, all of those types of things. Uh, so, so we're not really uh, doing a full-blown exegesis of all these texts um, in Scripture, which describe communion and baptism. We're not making a defense or an apologetic for believers' baptism by immersion, although we do hold to that. This is not the purpose of this episode. Uh, we're, we're not talking about uh, how and why the communion elements and how they function uh, as far as their representation of the body and the blood of Christ. All of those types of things will come later. Um, and and we're also not going to take a, a, a historical uh, direction on this episode. So that's, that's really, uh, conversations that will come later in the systematic. Am I, am I right in, in setting it up that way, Lance? Yep. That's a, that's a solid summary, uh, with where we are not going with this episode. <laughs> um, you know, typical episodes on communion and, uh, the Lord's table or the communion and baptism rather will go that direction. Uh, we will eventually go that direction, uh, like you said, when we get into ecclesiology. But our, our main focus in uh, this particular episode, as we record here uh, tonight, would be to focus on communion and baptism as necessary acts of worship, as necessary acts of worship. So what we've done on the previous two episodes, and uh, I'm willing to bet we'll continue that as we work through this series, we're really trying to develop and define what worship is. The American evangelical church uh, really looks and focuses on worship as music only. So we're going to talk about music. We've got that uh, set aside really to close out this series, but we want to show that the scriptures teach that there's more to worship than just singing a contemporary song. So for this mm-hmm. episode, we, we want to demonstrate that the scriptures teach that communion and believer's baptism is, is an act of worship. That's right. Uh, I'm glad you put it that way. And and I would add, too, that it's an act of corporate worship, right? It's for the gathered church. Um, and, and I, I want to read a quote. Uh, it's from uh, a little-known figure from church history. Uh, and I say that because I just finished writing a dissertation uh, on his theology. It's by the, a man by the name of Patrick Hughes Mel. Uh, shameless plug, by the way. If you're interested in that, reach out to me. I'm happy to pass that along to anyone who uh, may want to know more about him. But uh, Patrick Hughes Mel, 
<laughs> uh, free of charge uh, as long as you're a subscriber to the Reformed Informants podcast. All right. Uh, so uh, Patrick Hughes Mel uh, has this quote, and I'm going to read it slowly because there's a lot in here, but it, I love the way that this sets up our conversation. Okay. So he says this He says, God has two ways of communicating to the people the doctrine of Christ crucified. Two ways of communicating the gospel. One, by the vocal utterances of the minister as he addresses himself to their ear. So that's what we talked about last episode. That's the expositional preaching. That, that's uh, taking the word of God and proclaiming it to the people and explaining it to them. So that's the primary means of communicating this truth. The other, Mel says, are by his ordinances, which by, exp- by impressive silence express in symbol the same great truth to their eyes. So there are but two gospel ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Mel says the primary object of each is to exhibit in symbol the same great truth of a crucified Savior that the heralds of salvation proclaim in oral language. And there's just so much beauty to that, that God communicates to our ears through the proclamation of the word, and he communicates the same truth to our eyes through these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Comments on that, Lance? That guy Mel just dropping bombs. Oh, my goodness. Dude, that that would probably be... Subjected into my veins. I just want more of it. (laughs) Goodness. Gosh, man, that's a spiritual steroids except like legal kind you know <laughs> yeah man i goodness i mean that <laughs> the, the, there's there's no way i can go beyond uh the beauty of uh, of defining the the purpose behind these ordinances and what they mean as as far as the gospel uh and and worship those two those two categories man and you know we talked about this before we hit record uh, that that in reality you know, we talked about a case for expository preaching last episode, but even when we talk about these ordinances this episode, notice the, the I mean, there's just a centrality to the word of God. There's a centrality yes. to the gospel and, 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 and to Christ. So you, you see that same theme running through all of these elements of uh, of worship, uh, you know, under that heading that we've we've titled the regulative principle. And it's that same theme uh, running throughout. And I mean, it, it's no different again when we come to uh, communion and, and believer's baptism um, uh, for this episode. So um, I think it would be best for us to uh, define our terms. We've done this from uh, really the, the starting point of the Reformed Informants podcast. We, we try and lay out some terms, lay out some definitions to make sure that uh you know, you and I, TJ, are on the same page, but everybody that's listening is following along as well. So we're going to first mm-hmm. talk about communion. So let's, I mean, let, let's let, let's define communion or or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. I mean, where where would you take us to at least kick us off with more of a, I don't know, more of an official um, declaration or definition of of the Lord's supper? Yeah. Well, before I do that, I want to I want to ask you, Lance. So. There, there are all, you, you even alluded to this just a second ago. You, you mentioned the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Uh, what different names do we have? Which one are you comfortable using? Where do those things come from? Because 
I, I want us to to be aware that different traditions may use different terminology, ordinance versus sacrament. This is not a full apologetic on that, but again, what what can kind of help us put these into, um, I don't know, at least into the same category of thinking. Yeah, so let's start with the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you're going to find uh, a number of verses that deal with uh, this concept or this ordinance of communion or the Lord's Supper. But if we're talking about the Lord's Supper in particular and we're looking at that title, uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, I mean, Paul explicitly calls uh, communion... Uh, he, he he calls it the Lord's Supper, so he gives mm-hmm. it a, you know a, a formal title. Uh, just a little context: the Corinthians, um, this this was one of their many battles and their many sins, where they were being disobedient to the Word of God and and they were being neglectful of matters of the church. So Paul addresses that issue in First Corinthians chapter eleven, and, and he defines it or gives it the title uh, the Lord's Supper. That's right. That's chapter 11, verse 20. Uh, and other terms that, that Paul is alluding to here, you, you have things like you mentioned the Lord's table or communion. In, in the book of Acts, uh, it's referred to um, as the breaking of bread. Uh, and so we can deduce or, or uh, assume from that text that this is primarily the, the meal that they had in mind. Uh, and of course, this is a reference to um, the institution of this meal, which happened at the Passover. So uh, you'll remember that every year in um, in Israel, they would gather together. They would remember uh, the Passover. They would celebrate this this uh, uh, this event in Israel's history, uh, dating all the way back to the Exodus, where um, the the Blood was uh, spread over the lentils of the door, and then the angel of God passed over them. And so as they were gathering together for this Passover meal, uh, Jesus uh, institutes at that moment uh, at what became known as the Last Supper, which was the beginning of what we call the Lord's Supper. We see that in, in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, and then again, as you mentioned, Lance, that has come to be known through Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians as the Lord's Supper. I, I think right here is it, this is practical theology, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're harmonizing all of these texts uh, that are talking about uh, you know, the same event. So you alluded back to you know, Old Testament theology um, and the connection with uh, Old Testament Passover. Of course, the Thursday night, uh, the final night before Jesus' death on the cross in the upper room, uh, Jesus is meeting with the disciples, and he he gives, uh, really, uh, for a lack of a better term, he gives the formality or he, he gives the order um, of how you would partake in the Lord's table or in communion. Um, he again, he does that in the upper room. I think all of the Gospels record that to uh, to one degree or another. Um, and, and then Paul adds to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we mentioned before, uh, the early church, uh, like you mentioned, TJ, in Acts chapter 2, is uh, breaking bread with one another. And then uh, just to touch off what you said earlier, it, whenever we see this happening, we, we see it happening in a corporate environment. Um, right. We see it happening uh, together with a body of believers, whether that's uh, again, that Thursday night in the upper room with Jesus and the 12, 
um, whether that's Acts chapter 2 and, and the local church there uh, in Jerusalem, or even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with the church at Corinth, it, it, it's always attached to the local church. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to piggyback off what you just said there when you're talking about the, the local church, because this is a, a conversation that we were forced to have because of COVID. Uh, and as a local church, we had to ask the question, okay, when we take the Lord's Supper, uh, who participates? Can we do this virtually? All this. This is not a discussion of that. Uh, I think we've actually addressed this in a previous episode. But in First Corinthians chapter eleven, Paul says it five times. He talks about the physical gathering of the church. Uh, he says in verse seventeen, "When you come together." Verse eighteen, "When you come together as a church." Verse twenty, "When you come together." Verse thirty-three, "When you come together to eat." Verse thirty-four, "So that when you come together." I mean, it's just. Over and over, there's this emphasis on the physical gathering of the church. And so that's why whenever we talk about uh, the the Lord's table or communion, the Lord's supper, uh, being part of corporate worship, that's why. It's because uh, Paul speaks explicitly about this. This is given to the gathered church. And so um, this is what uh, makes it part of corporate worship. In other words, it's not just something that like me and my wife are going to do uh, for dessert tonight, you know, like, okay, we had our meal. Let's, let's go ahead and take the Lord's Supper together. You know, like that, that's not what this is for. It's instituted for the local church uh, to gather, to come together. Paul, Paul talks about this again in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the breaking of one bread. Uh, the, the point being that the one body gathered together shares in this one bread uh, from, from within a local church. And so uh, that's the point. That's the purpose. Uh, it's to point back to the gospel. And so it is for the gathered church, and it is uh, to be implemented and used during uh, corporate worship. Yeah, man. And the only exception to that would be if TJ would figure out what type of cake he actually liked and would slice that with Chloe, man, then you could do that at home. <laughs> yeah, we can handle that. <laughs> no, but yeah, to, to, to wrap up that section of the Lord's Supper and that particular title, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, Paul says that this is a specific command from the Lord. In, in other words, this isn't optional. Okay, so this isn't an optional piece of or a component of worship. This is a command. This must be done in the local church. Now, um, to move on to the next title that you may hear for communion would be Eucharist. Eucharist. Now, if you've grown up with a Roman Catholic background or you know about Roman Catholic theology, this is what they call communion. Uh, they they call it you know taking the Eucharist and they would do this in Mass, which would be their church service. Um, and it, w- what's unfortunate because we would disagree with uh, their interpretation of communion or the Eucharist, and we'll talk about that again in upcoming episodes. But that word Eucharist that we have is uh, it, it's a transliteration from a Greek word Eucharisto. Okay, so all that word means is giving thanks. And it actually comes from that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 passage uh, that we've just been talking about for the last few minutes. Let me read it to you so you can kind of, I can kind of set the context of where this word comes from. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So there's the command. So Paul's, again, this is a command from God uh, to, to do communion. 
So he goes on to say that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So again, this is that Thursday night before Jesus uh, was crucified. Paul's referencing that. Verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that word Eucharist is right there in the English translation where it says, given thanks. You can see this again in Luke chapter 22, verse 17, when Luke records uh, the Last Supper, again, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And when he had taken the cup, this is Luke twenty-two seventeen, and given thanks. So again, that's that's where we see another element or another title for this idea of communion, and that's where we get Eucharist from. Yeah, and I think that that's important. I'm glad you you said it that way because, uh, as you said, sometimes those those concepts, those terms, can get uh, hijacked or or they can lose their their meaningfulness because we associate it with something else. But really, this this time, this gathering where the the body of Christ uh, participates in this, it is an act of worship by which we give thanks. Um, It's a a celebration of the uh, sacrificial work of Christ in our stead, uh, the imputation of our sin to him on the cross, and it's a reminder of the seriousness of our sin, and and it's it's a, a an expression of gratitude, and so it, it, it's worshipful, and uh, and it is that is a biblical concept uh, that comes straight from the pages uh, of scripture there in First Corinthians eleven, as you said. So, um, all right, Lance, let me let me ask this question this way because I we we want to want to kind of make sure that we're we're touching on all the right things here. But the Lord's Supper, we, we've talked about kind of what it is and where this name comes from, and, and we've seen the example of when you gather together, but what exactly are we doing? How, how exactly is it worship? Um, what exactly is going on here? In other words, we've got all these components of, of, of biblical worship that we talked about uh, from the regulative principle, but why is this included? What, what's the reason for it? Yeah, man, as, as you were asking that question, man, I just, I just got to thinking here, like this is a difficult episode to do without getting into all of the other nuances mm-hmm. and all of the other components of this discussion, right? So like immediately in my mind, I, I'm wanting to, you know, go back to that Thursday night where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's talking about the bread and what it represents and he's talking about the wine and what it <laughs> mm-hmm. and what it what you know and what it represents of course those things represent his his body that was broken and, and the blood that was shed um, but we, we can't get into all the <laughs> the nooks and crannies of that today uh, so what i did for this episode guide is basically i just kind of laid out first corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 26 okay. as a little bit of a mini exegesis or mini framework for how worship fits into this particular ordinance. So I think it would just be best, at least in my opinion here, and I know we didn't rehearse a lot of this before we hit record. <laughs> but <laughs> We never rehearse. I don't know what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. <laughs> I, I guess I meant re- rehearse and casual convo. But um, if we just read a verse, uh, you know, take the main element or main teaching from that verse, expound on that briefly, and I, I think we'll be able to answer your question uh, that particular okay. way. So, yeah, so, I mean, if you have your Bible, First Corinthians 11 would be a great place to turn to. Open that up on your phone, I guess, and you could follow along. But there's really four 
elements or four acts of worship that come out of this text. And, and, and again, this text is Christ-centered and it's Christ-exalting. So uh, I think you'll see that as we go along. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus and the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So the, the first comment I would make, and I'm going to send it back to you, T, to expand on this a, a little bit, is that this is an act of worship because it's following the direct and explicit commands of Christ. Okay, so you're, you're, you're highlighting, you're pointing out the fact that in our obedience, uh, in following the example and in submitting to the directive of our Lord, uh, we are uh, ascribing worth to him uh, because we are saying that what he directs, what he commands, what he uh, demonstrates is worth following. It's worth obeying. And it's worth that because he is worth uh, obeying and worth following. And so just simply as an act of obedience to him, we are ascribing worth to our Savior. Is, is that fair to say? Would you Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's perfect. Now you've just set yourself up to give commentary after I read the verse and oh, give it. Right. <laughs> let no, let me read the next verse and ask you this question. All right. Okay, so that's good. Verse verse twenty four. So Paul sets it up in the verse twenty four. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Comments on that. Yeah, and then in verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup, and he, he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So not only are we worshiping God by fulfilling this command, he's commanded his followers to do this, we're also, also worshiping God by remembering exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to do, and that was mm. to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, not for his sins, but for the sins of those who would believe in him, and then to raise three days later. So those two elements that we mentioned earlier, the bread and the wine, they represent the crushed body of Christ, that beaten and mangled body of Christ on the cross for sins. Mm -hmm. And then the wine and the blood, uh, th th that's clearly um, a representation of the Old Testament sacrificial system that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. In other words, there had to be the shedding of blood for mm -hmm. forgiveness of sins. So all of those elements, all of those components go into this remembrance, recalling to mind, meditating on, and thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, I, I've got nothing to add to that. That's outstanding. But I think it does lead us into the next verse where he continues and says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I think there are a, a couple of things to say here. So I'm going to comment real quick, uh, and then I want to pass it back to you and let you kind of put a bow on this. But related to what you just said, so you talked about this remembrance aspect. Paul continues referencing Jesus's institution of the Lord's Supper and says that when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So it's a, it's a proclamation of Christ. Um, Mel, who I quoted earlier, he, he said that the Lord's Supper is a, a visible sermon. 
uh, because by it, in its silence, it preaches to the people's eyes this great gospel truth that Christ's body was broken and that his blood was shed for the atonement of sin. And so when the bread is broken and when the cup is poured, what we see is a proclamation to the world of the God whom we worship. It's a proclamation of, of the the sacrifice, the atonement, uh, the, the imputation of sin, uh, and then ultimately, uh, which is uh, foreshadowed is the the resurrection of Christ, which seals all those promises. And so, uh, this this uh, act whereby the church corporately comes together uh, and celebrates as a whole, uh, as a body of believers, it is a proclamation, a, a visible demonstration of the gospel truth of Christ uh, laying down His life on the cross and. and uh, Lance, I want you to 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 piggyback off that, but the verse continues with that little phrase until he comes. Why is that significant? Dude, I've got so many thoughts swirling through my head right now, man. <laughs> you know, because again, I, I think Mel just he 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 summarizes the 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 tandem effect that the preaching of the word has with mm. the the silent preaching of the word through that, through that, the ordinances, right. man. I mean. That, that that's why God is prescribing both of these <laughs> mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm. be done as part of corporate worship um, uh, on Sunday mornings, man. And and by the way, I, let me let me just say real quick: How good is God to us that He has given us this? I mean, because what I tell my church whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we are just so prone to forget it. Like I, I, I have to preach the gospel to myself because I just I live as if it's not true. And so I need to remind myself each and every morning, as Paul says, I die every day. Like I need to remind myself of this gospel. And God has been so good to us to give us this institution to visibly demonstrate and remind us of that gospel truth that we hold so dearly. Uh, he's just, he's just, I mean, it's just an act of, of incredible generosity to it. Yeah, man, that's a good word because we are prone to wonder. <laughs> we are prone to wonder, man. So God is, I mean, he set up, you know, the, the checks and balances, safeguards, man, to, to constantly remind his people and to nourish his people. Um, Amen. and to, to, to wrap up this first Corinthians 11 passage, yeah, down in verse 26, it says that we proclaim this, we herald this truth, this reality, this ordinance, we herald it until, until he comes until he returns. Um, <laughs> Christians persevere, right? Salvation, of course, forgiveness of sins and salvation is an instantaneous act, but, salvation in the sanctification sense, it, it continues until we are either called home or Christ returns. Mm. Uh, th- this isn't just a, a one, uh, you know, a one-time deal uh, in terms of the Lord's Supper. Th- this is something that's proclaimed in the life of the local church, in the heart of the believer, literally until we die or, or, or Christ returns. That, that was so much, <laughs> that was so much more rich than I even anticipated going in. And, uh, and now I'm excited to continue the discussion uh, for the other ordinance that we have laid out here, which is baptism. So um, when we've talked about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, we, we've just, I mean, we've only barely scratched the surface. We've only barely touched on the, the theological weight behind it. Um, 
but I hope that we've we've made the point that this is a, an act of corporate worship, that it is, it is an intentional uh, prescribed element as seen in Scripture for the church to partake in regularly. Um, we'll discuss later the practical aspects of how often and, you know, which, which, uh, symbols we should use all that kind of stuff, but that that's for another conversation. But, but man, this has been just incredibly helpful, uh, to just remind me of the, of the importance of the Lord's supper as it, as it pertains to corporate worship. But there's another ordinance that is worth our time and discussion. And that is the ordinance of baptism. Now, as again, we're going to be tempted, I'm sure to, to, uh, develop and and delve into all these other theological aspects of baptism, um, but to just try to keep us within those guardrails. Any comments, opening thoughts, definition of terms? What do we mean? What is baptism? Yeah, man, let's let's just roll through this like we did um, with uh, the the last section there. Let's just talk about some terms. And uh, then, then we'll get rolling with, rolling with this final uh, half of the episode. Yeah, bap, uh, baptism, um, again, that, that's a transliteration um, from the Greek word uh, baptizo, um, w- which means uh, to immerse. Uh, even in secular Greek, that was used, um, uh, used for sinking ships. Uh, that that ship was baptized. In other words, uh, that that ship was com- completely submerged or sinking uh, under the water. Um, so it, it's also so it literally means that. And then uh, I think what's helpful to understand that definition is if you go to Romans chapter six and look at verses one through seven, Paul actually uses baptism in a metaphorical sense. Uh, for mm-hmm. illustrative purposes, he he says that you were buried, you were buried with Christ in baptism. So the context there is talking about being immersed or being buried, even in a metaphorical sense, sense which tells us what the literal sense or the literal understanding of the word actually is. Um, right. So, anyways, again, right. I, I think a, a ton more could be said on that definition. I mean, there's been 2000 years of debate on that particular word, but, <laughs> but at least for where we're going in this episode, when we refer to baptism, we're talking about, um, immersion. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's, that's well said. And I just had to laugh when you said 2000 years of debate because my guy Mel actually wrote uh, a book on baptism, its mode and its subjects and, uh, dealt with the same thing that, uh, the church has been, wrestling with for 2000 years, uh, in his own way. And so, uh, yes, you're, you're, you're right in that. So, uh, not attempting to solve all those, uh, debates tonight. Uh, what we want to do then is discuss and identify how, uh, baptism is a, an act or a component of corporate worship. And so, uh, again, I, I, I want to ask the question, uh, what is, so baptism is this immersion. Uh, it's this, it's this, uh, sinking or, or submersion under the water and why or how, in what way does baptism relate then, uh, to the local church? And in particular, I'm thinking about the aspect of corporate worship, right? So we, we know that, you know, I'm thinking about like the great commission 
We've got instructions from, from Jesus in Matthew 28. Um, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Trinitarian formula, Christ-centered, Christ-commissioned. Um, it, and this task is to go and to make disciples and to baptize them. But how does that actually work its way into the local church, right? Like how, how does that affect corporate worship? Yeah, well, you know, baptism is an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So mm-hmm. uh, baptism is a visible, um, it's a visible representation of the believer that has now died to sin and has been raised to life, spiritually speaking. Okay. Of course, all of that based on the person and and the work of Christ. All right. But um, what, what's often overlooked with this corporate component of it actually is, it comes from not truly understanding the, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. So, what what I mean by that is most people read that Matthew twenty eight passage, and they immediately assume that it's go make individual disciples and do individual baptisms. Okay, now mm-hmm. I, I will say on the one hand, it, it, it is that I mean the church is made up of individuals, but that great commission is, is given in the in the in the context of the local church. In other words, the local church making disciples, the local church baptizing, and the local church planting other local churches. Okay, so you, you see a individualistic component that is there, but there's also this corporate component that that is also there. So I say mm-hmm. all that to say, and I'm going to send it back to you, TJ. I, I say all that to say is that whenever baptism is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's kicked off in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. It's always in the context of the local church. It's mm-hmm. always there. Uh, you, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I, I think maybe I would say the same thing a different way or try to put it in different words um, just because th- this is where my mind went. But what you're saying then is that the Great Commission is not less than the act of individuals. It's certainly that, but it's more than that because when we yep. think about this, every individual that goes and takes the gospel should be part of a local church. And so they represent a local church taking the gospel to a non-believer who then becomes part of a local church. And so it's really a church multiplication that's happening because each individual believer is not just out on an island somewhere. Each individual believer is to be part of and to be uh, a vibrant participant in the local church. That That's what you're saying, correct? That, man, that, that is spot on. That's like Mel-esque right there, man. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I would go that far, but <laughs> that, that lends itself then to baptism being incorporated into the local gathering because— and again, we'll talk more about this in the ecclesiology series, but baptism becomes the entrance into uh, the local church level. And so mm. there's this uh, there, there's this fusion that happens between the ordinance and the local church. But now the question is still there. So so I think we're, we're trying to tie all this stuff together. We've, we've gathered everything, 
Uh, but but now, how is it part of corporate worship? In what way then? Uh, and I think you've hinted at this already, but but I'd like for you to, to develop it more to kind of unpack it some to say in what way then does the actual physical act of baptism? So we're we're watching someone be immersed in water. In what way is that actually worship? Because because you could well maybe you're just arguing. Well, yeah, I just watch somebody dip down in water, but I'm watching this unfold. Is it really an act of worship to God, let alone corporate worship? Any any thoughts on that, man? That's that's a loaded question. You know, you, you uh, yeah, I know. Trying to ask me to answer that thing here, you know, thirty seconds or a minute or so, <laughs> but you know, that's why we would advocate for believers' baptism to be done in a corporate worship service. In other words, we wouldn't want this to be done in an isolated setting outside the body of Christ, because corporately. Every brother or sister in Christ comes together in acknowledgement and celebration, of, of course, yes. of the work of the gospel, of the work of Christ, of the power of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but also celebrating that sinner that repented and believed upon Christ. Um, it, it's, it, it's like, um, it's like uh, the parable... Um, the three parables in Luke 15, uh, lost sheep, coin, son. You know, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So to borrow from that language, it's a joyful, celebratory, communal act that although we're not all getting immersed and dipped <laughs> underneath <laughs> the water, right? Like, But it, we're celebrating that a brother and sister in Christ is that's right. Um, and it, it's it's a proclamation of all of those truths. That's right. And and simultaneously as we talked about with the Lord's Supper, there's an element of a remembrance that happens. So if I'm watching a new brother or sister in Christ be baptized, how can I not but think about my own spiritual new birth? I mean I, mean, I think about uh, I know it's both of a passage that both of us hold very dearly to our hearts, but Ephesians chapter two, when Paul talks about being dead in your trespasses, and then in verse five, ver- verse four says, "But God," verse five says, "Made us alive together in Christ." And and there's this there's this visible sermon, as Mel said, as we've talked about. There's this this representation that our eyes can see what has happened uh, to us in a spiritual sense. And when I watch a new brother or sister just I mean, just erupt out of that water. I'm reminded of the spiritual awakening that happened in my life, and mm-hmm. I can do no—I can do no other thing but cry out to God in worship and praise and adoration and thanksgiving and and all of the natural responses that we have to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it's just this renewed, uh, this renewed feeling of, of gratitude and thanksgiving. Because the longer we walk in Christ, at times for some of us the further away we feel from our original depravity and sin. You know, like we, we've, as you continue on the journey of sanctification, you just feel that's, this is just who I am now. I, I'm in Christ as who am I, where my identity lies. And sometimes we forget, well, that's not who you were. And it had it not been for the saving, electing, loving uh, grace of our God, that's who you would still be. And so when we watch this happen, it should it should 
uh, it, it should prod emotions from within ourselves to just simply cry out in worship. And as you said, Lance, like when this happens on a corporate level, there's this celebration, there's this welcoming, there's this lovingness, uh, but there's also a corporate praise and uh, adoration and worship for the God who has saved all of us in the same way. <laughs> Man. Oh, yeah, that was good. I, I, I really can't wait to, you know, delve into a, a full episode or two on on these ordinances later on man man it, it, it made me what, what you were saying there you know on, on the one hand everybody's testimony is unique in the sense that it's a you know it's a different experience um, of how the gospel uh, was shared with you whether that was through reading scripture or you know someone was just in in conversation with you or whatnot and it, it's always refreshing to hear how or hear and see how the Lord worked in, in the heart of that, you know, that center and that, in that situation. But, on, but on the other hand, everybody's testimony is the same, you know, that's right. I, I, I man, I, I'm a wretch and I, I, I'm a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And Christ came in and called me into his kingdom. So I, I don't know, man. I mean, uh, I'm getting a little more fired up for this episode than I anticipated. <laughs> Same that happens to me on a regular basis. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do think, I think we've probably said said enough uh, to 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 make our case. But are there any other comments or observations that you think would be helpful to kind of put a bow on this or take it to the initiative? What What are your thoughts to kind of uh, because we could continue on this journey, but I think that we've said what needs to be said to make the yeah. case for this to be corporate worship. So any any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the only thing that I would add, uh, again, we, we, we don't want to fall off track in that book of Judges sense, you know, doing what is right in our own eyes. So we need to apply that situation to baptism and communion. In other words, we need to in our local churches to make sure that we are conducting these ordinances uh, by by the word of God. In other words, we must be rooted and grounded in the word of God. Mm-hmm. And in these ordinances, we must be focused on the person and work of Christ. And these things must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, it's, it's not this, uh, you know, wheels off topical sermon that we talked about last time. That's man. right. You know, God has... He's given strict commands and ways for these ordinances to be done. Um, not so much so that there's order within the church, although that is part of it, but mm-hmm. he prescribed it in a way that would bring him the most honor and glory. And we need to be faithful to that. Lance, that was just perfect, man. It was so good. And I'm, I'm so glad that you just, you just brought it back to that, that central the whole purpose, right? Like, like, what did we say before about the regulative principle? It was to put those guardrails up so that everything would be about worship and about worshiping God without the wheels coming off. And remember, we made the <laughs> statement that we said that God's box is better than your ideas, right? Like whatever God has yeah. prescribed, it is ultimately best for him. And God has prescribed these ordinances for our good and for his glory. And um, 
I mean, and let me just roll into the initiative and I, and I just want to make a quick comment and then you, you uh, wrap us up here. But, um, and I'm just blown away, even anew in in the middle of this conversation at the goodness of God, uh, the mercy of God in giving us these visible ordinances. I mean, if you really think about it, like, and we're going to delve into all of these things more deeply later, but we don't need the Lord's Supper or baptism in order to be saved. I mean, you you can you can be born again without those two things, you know. But God gave those things as a gift to the church to remind us of these truths. It's just this visible. It's just saying the same thing another way, just the punches rolling in from every angle just to communicate the glorious goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is just, I mean, it's just God being good to us, man. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll have to just be honest. I've, I've just, I'm just reminded of the need to be thankful for those things and to celebrate and to slow down on a Sunday morning because, when when we take we partake of the Lord's Supper, I mean, I lead in that, and there are times whenever I'm thinking about, okay, are the, all the elements passed down? How much time is this? And is the piano stop playing? Like, no, this is just a celebration. It's an act of worship, and so uh, I'm just encouraged, man. This has been fun. Whoa, dude, that was, that was a good word, man. That that was a that was a solid initiative right there. Um, yeah, I mean to. You know, for me, after thinking through this material and working through this episode, like I'm so prone, you know, to borrow what I said earlier, I'm so prone to go through the motions, um, even in my own heart during baptism and and during communion, um, and 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 to sometimes not think of it as seriously and deeply, you know, as I should, you know, going back to that first Corinthians 11 passage, you know, Paul says to, to examine yourself, you know, uh, to take Mm, these matters seriously. So I think maybe I'm just challenging my own heart, uh, and, uh, my, uh, myself to think deeply on these ordinances time after time after time and to not let them be mundane or to not let them just be routine or, you know, something to pass the time during service, but to, to, to really think of them as true and authentic worship. That's right, man. Gosh, it's such a good word. And, uh, I think it's a word that we can all relate to. Um, and, and I hope that for those of you listening, uh, that this has been an encouragement to you. I hope that this has been edifying. It's been something that, uh, has stirred your affections for Christ. Um, and as we continue in this, this series, this, this conversation about biblical worship, I pray, uh, for myself, for you, Lance, for all of us, that uh, that we would we would just be uh, those that appreciate and, and enjoy corporate worship all the more as a result. Um, and at this point, if you're if you've made it this far into the episode, just want to remind you that if you're not doing so already, you can be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can find us on YouTube. You can like us on Facebook. We're at Reformed Informants. We're on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants. And you can find links to all of our social media platforms, all our previous episodes, uh, Reformed Informants gear. You can find kind of our home base. That's at our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com.